0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. I'm the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Each week, I talk to the coolest culinary folks around. We have a special show for you today. Just in case you haven't heard it yet, we are re-airing the first episode of our brand new podcast called She's My Cherry Pie. Some of you might remember this was a mini-series we did last year. Well, we spun it off into its very own podcast. The show is hosted by baker and author Jesse Sheehan and features Jesse in conversation with some of the best bakers and pastry chefs around. I love the show, and I think you will too. New episodes of She's My Cherry Pie drop every Saturday, so if you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit CherryBomb.com to sign up for the She's My Cherry Pie newsletter and get recipes and transcripts while you're there. Ready? Here's a slice of She's My Cherry Pie. Hi,
1: peeps. You're listening to She's My Cherry Pie, a brand-new baking podcast from Cherry Bomb. I'm your host, Jesse Sheehan. I'm a baker, recipe developer, and author of three baking books, including my latest, Snackable Bakes. Each episode, I'm hanging with world-class bakers and taking a deep dive into their signature baked goods. We're so honored to kick off She's My Cherry Pie with the legendary Claudia Fleming. She truly is the pastry chef's pastry chef. Claudia has inspired so many folks in the industry through her work at Gramercy Tavern, her 2001 cult classic The Last Course, which was reissued in 2019, and her current role at Daily Provisions in New York City. I'm talking to Claudia about her chocolate caramel tart. She introduced this dessert at Gramercy Tavern in the 90s, and it became one of the most copied restaurant desserts ever. Claudia joins me to talk about the surprising inspiration for the tart. Hint, it's a candy. And she walks me through the recipe, plus her tips, tricks, and favorite ingredients. If you want to make Claudia's chocolate caramel tart at home, and I hope you do, you can find the recipe in our show notes. We also talk about Claudia's incredible career and her latest book, Delectable, Sweet and Savory Baking. Thank you to Le Crusade and California Prunes for sponsoring today's episode. Since She's My Cherry Pie is a brand new podcast, I have a few favors to ask. First, I would love for you to subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast platform. Feel free to leave a five-star rating. Yes, folks, I'm asking for five. And a review. And let me know what bakers and baked goods you'd like me to feature on future episodes. Also, you can subscribe to our free baking newsletter at cherrybomb.com. You'll receive it each week before the show airs, so you'll know about the signature baked good and special guest ahead of time. Now here's a word about Le Creuset. For nearly a century, Le Creuset has been creating joy in the kitchen and beyond as the first in colorful cookware, the finest in quality and design, and the favorite for generations of cooks and bakers. And you know what? I love my Le Creuset so much that I have them hanging on the wall in my kitchen. I use them when I bake for melting butter, for making honeycomb candy and caramel, for shoe pastry, and more. And also, of course, when I cook. They are literally my everything. And this season, I will definitely be baking bread in their new bread oven. If you haven't seen it, it's a two-piece enameled cast iron set that includes a domed lid to help trap and circulate steam for that perfect golden crispy crust every time. It comes in gorgeous Le Creuset colors, including Flame, Cerise, and Marseille, which happens to be my Le Creuset color. Whether you're making a wish list for your kitchen or want to add to your existing collection, head to LeCrucet.com to discover the world of Le Creuset. browse their beautiful colors, and even snag some recipes. Let's chat with today's guest. Claudia, so happy to have you here on She's My Cherry Pie and so excited to talk about your infamous chocolate caramel tart, among other things.
2: I am delighted and honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So
1: first question, just for those that don't know, can you give us a little info about how you got into baking? I like to think of it as the ballerina to baker story.
2: Oh, way back then. (laughs) I came to New York to dance. And as all good, struggling artists—I use that word very loosely—I worked in restaurants for its flexibility, and I very quickly realized I wasn't going to be in the Paul Taylor Dance Company. So I started pursuing other things, and I loved working in the restaurant industry. I loved the pace. I loved the creativity. And I loved the fact that there was showtime every night. So for me, there was a natural transition into working in the restaurant industry professionally, d- deciding to make that my life's work. I became very attracted to working in the kitchen. And at a certain point, I was working at Jams then, the seminal California restaurant in New York City in, in the 80s and I asked Jonathan Waxman the chef and owner if I could work in the kitchen for a bit and he said oh yeah sure sure so i started just going in in the afternoons and helping prep and i was smitten i was i got bit by the bug by the cooking bug and just continued working in restaurants and here I am. It's so it's
1: so funny because I although I keep it a secret, I'm a recovering actress and when I came to New York City, I was always a waitress. I loved the camaraderie of the kitchen. I loved the way the kitchen moved and how they all did it, but I it, unlike you, I never thought, "Oh, I want to be back there."
2: Yeah. I guess when I realized I was going to do that for a long period of time, the front of the house, unlike today, didn't have the same kind of trajectory or prestige. And not that working in the kitchen had prestige back then either. But it was something that I felt more comfortable doing. And then it was
1: pretty fast that you made it from maybe the more savory side of the kitchen to the pastry side of the kitchen?
2: I was working at Union Square Cafe on the savory side of the kitchen, wanted to get out of New York City for the summer and went to Aspen. A friend of Jonathan's had a restaurant there and asked if I could work there for the summer, and I did. And I came back to New York City in the fall, and Michael Romano, the chef at Union Square, said, there's nothing available in the kitchen right now, but the pastry chef needs an assistant. Mm. Any interest? Absolutely. Yep at that point in my career, wanting to learn anything yep. and actually still feel the same. And I never left. Yeah. I started older than most people. And the pastry world offered a little bit more autonomy yeah. working in restaurants. It's very piecemeal. You don't actually really put a whole dish together. You're the protein cook, and you put the protein on. You're the veg cook, you put the veg on. You're the saucier, you put the sauce on. In the pastry department, that's so much smaller, you did everything. You did the prep, you did the production, you did the plating, you did the break. You did everything. I liked that. I liked that I saw everything from its inception to its ending.
1: For those that don't know, could you describe what you think your dessert style is? I know you've been described as... Treating desserts like a cook and of thinking of flavor first, if you think that's a pretty good description of what you do,
2: could you unpack that a little bit for us? I do think that's a very good description. I started out as a cook. Yeah. And part of being in the pastry department in the dessert world was, again, somewhat mercenary. I knew I would go farther faster in pastry than I would on the savory line. It was somewhat unusual at that point for women, and I wasn't as strong. At a certain point, shame on me, didn't think I could compete, but probably today it wouldn't be an issue. I fell in love with the pastry side of things. So there was always that cook's mentality, I Mm -hmm. think. On the line, you're putting on the protein, you're putting on the veg, you're putting on the sauce, and that rhythm and that component aspect stayed with me forever. And that was how my style developed, because I was wanting to put these different elements on the plate and somewhat deconstruct classic desserts and turn them into components to create more of a dish than a pastry.
1: Your first book is The Last Course. How did that come to be? Was it, did somebody approach you and say, oh, you're making all these delicious desserts, and this tart is viral, or well, they probably didn't use that term. but how did how did the last course come to be? Danny introduced me to David Black. And can you tell people who Danny is just in case they don't know?
2: So Danny Meyer, who is the owner of Gramercy Tavern, introduced me to David Black, who was very well-known and more so now agent who frequented the restaurant, uh. and said, why don't you sit down and talk to David, see if there's something there. And so after several conversations with David, he said, I think there's something here. So I wrote a proposal, and he shopped it around and Random House decided to publish amazing
1: and this book is described as a cult classic why
2: I don't even know why did it
1: go I know I don't think I do either but all I can say is what I know is that I happen to have bought a copy when it came out in the early 2000s but very shortly it was completely sold out and then now reprinted in
2: 2019 okay so I don't know that it sold out so quickly okay honestly do not have the stats on that at all but in retrospect i think the book came out in october of 2001 right after 9/11 yeah. and so i felt like maybe it just went unnoticed mm-hmm. and then at a certain point it got noticed and you couldn't get it and people want what they can't have of course so i think that created this as you say cultish yeah phenomenon around it. And the fact that it didn't get reprinted made people want it more. The only thing I'll say because you're being humble is that so many
1: established, amazing pastry chefs think of the last course as one of, if not their Bible, one of them. So it clearly, I think you're right. And I'm just like that. If something's not available, I'm like, please, can I have 10? So I get that exactly. But I also know that people who do this for a living, this is and I'm padding my copy from the early <laughs> 2000s, I want this book. Your newest book, Delectable, which came out this past fall, a kind of a new chapter for you, a homecoming as it were. It's been described as being for home bakers. What does that mean? As I do, I read my cookbooks cover to cover, as many of us do. It's not hard, but it's not easy peasy. There's some bread ruse, there's this, there's that. Talk to me about this idea of being for home bakers, being a
2: homecoming. I wanna say it's for home bakers because I baked it from my home. And as I'm sure you've heard, it was during the pandemic and I was in my little rental cottage on the east end of Long Island with an electric stove and oven and no air conditioning and no dishwasher. I think I spent more time washing dishes than I did cooking, actually. And whilst it was an incredible time, it was incredibly challenging, and I found myself at the grocery store, with my mask on, of course, not being able to get yeast, and not being able to get flour, and not being able to get sugar, um, and all kinds of things. So it, it brought me to a pretty basic place of course, I started ordering things online when it got to the point where I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm going to start shopping online. I began just making and baking things I wanted to eat as opposed to focusing on what I thought other people wanted to eat. I love, I think I read this, that you you
1: kind of wrote the book just as you used to develop recipes for the restaurant in the sense of seasonally. Like, oh, Yes. And partly also, of course, the influence of the pandemic. But when it was summer, you were working on recipes that used the produce
2: from the summer. Absolutely. When it was the
1: winter, yeah. it was apples.
2: Yeah. That was inbred, I think, from yeah. Gramercy. Whenever people say to me, what inspires your desserts? And I, the seasons, first right. thing. Think about a banana in July. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Not going to happen. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you to California Prunes for sponsoring this episode of She's My Cherry Pie. What do California prunes have to do with baking, you might ask? The answer is everything. First, prunes are a great ingredient on their own when it comes to baking. Imagine a California prune bread with pecans and cardamom, or a ginger prune snacking cake, or thumbprint cookies with a jammy prune filling. Second, if you're looking to make some healthy baking ingredient swaps, you can use prune puree as a replacement for sugar, oil, or even eggs in certain baked goods. Homemade prune puree is so simple. It's prunes and water blended together, and the puree keeps in your fridge for up to four weeks. And third, snacking. California prunes are a super snack because they're loaded with nutrients like vitamin K, dietary fiber, potassium, and antioxidants, all of which are good for your heart, gut, and bones. And you know how important that is. California prunes are portable, delicious, and have just the right level of sweetness. You can find California prunes at your favorite grocery store or specialty shop. To learn more and snag some great recipes, head over to californiaprunes.org. Now, back to our guest. Okay, so I want to talk about the chocolate caramel tart. And in the last course, they're tarts. So I might go in and out of plural. I don't want the peeps to think I don't know what I'm talking about. But in the last course, they're called tarts. Indelectable, it's a single tart. But it's a very iconic, influential dessert. Could you describe it before we jump into it?
2: It is a chocolate cookie crust, sablé crust, as we call it in the biz, with a caramel, which is sugar with butter and cream and lots of salt in my case, topped with a bittersweet chocolate ganache. I like to use at least 70% cacao. And a ganache is very simply hot cream and chocolate. That makes a delicious, glossy confection that can be anything from a frosting to a truffle.
1: I love what inspired this dessert. It's a candy. Mm -hmm. And I did not even know this, even though this is one of my favorite candies. And I'm sorry. (laughs) So I want to hear, in Claudia's own words, because I can say it. Tell us the candy that inspired the tart. Rolo's. Love that so much. I don't know if people realize, because chocolate and caramel now seems like, oh, of course, well, I'm going to get a chocolate cake, I'm going to get a caramel filling. Just so people understand, when Claudia was first creating these tarts at Gramercy Tavern, this was not a thing. I read a, about a great story, or
2: know, great to me, but when you went to the chocolate show in Paris. So I was very privileged to be able to attend the chocolate show in Paris, and when would that have been? been the late Late 90s 90s. late 90s and I was at a chocolate tasting at the chocolate show and somebody put sea salt on the chocolate and it was an epiphany it was unbelievable my chocolate just became chocolatier and more nuanced and you tasted all the other underlying notes and it just blew my mind And the chocolate caramel tart was already in production, and we were already serving it. But when I came back to New York, the salt went on the tart. So brilliant. And I think it's just – it made it. And I have to also say that I don't love cake. I don't love cupcakes. I don't – I'm not a – Frosting. Yeah. I'm always looking – or was – looking to take things down to a very basic – and intense flavor experience because I also believe very strongly in moderation and I like to pack as much flavor into small things. Another epiphany I was at my aunt's once and she had a bowl of candies. I don't remember what they were. And I kept eating them and eating them and, eating them and I was never getting satisfied. And I'm like, huh, ah, by intentionally. Yeah. Candy companies make things that you never get satiated so that you just eat the whole bag. Yeah. But if you have one perfect piece of chocolate, it's enough.
1: Yeah. You can stop.
2: You can stop. Yeah. Okay. As
1: you said, it's this chocolate pastry shell, unsalted butter, confection why confectioner rather than granulated? Confectioner sugar has a little bit of cornstarch yep. in
2: it. It's a little drier and gives a little more of a is it crumble. More tender. tender or, tenderizer. Yep, a it's a bit. Tend, yes, corn tender yes, cornstarch is a tenderizer. Yeah.
1: Um, unsweetened cocoa powder, an egg yolk, which is sort of like the bind, yep. b- binder. One query I had just about both the cocoa powder that's in the dough and then the chocolate that's in the ganache. A favorite brand.
2: Grocery stores have come such a long way. Yeah. I mean, you can get e at the grocery store. And since that's what I was trying to do, I was trying to make everything as accessible as possible. That was the chocolate I used for Delectable, and I love it.
1: Do they have a cocoa powder as well? They do. Is it natural or Dutch processed? It's natural. Okay. This is a question I'm always curious about. When are you using Dutch processed, if ever? If I was making the cookie dough I would probably put in Dutch process because I love the color the and, color yeah. yeah
2: yeah it's a visual thing it really is. right
1: yeah do you have yeah. a do you ever turn to Dutch process or you you'd stick to natural because it's easier for
2: people? I do use Dutch process for the sake of the books yep. and accessibility. I use natural yeah makes sense. The
1: salt that you might put inside of the dough or the caramel, is it different than your finishing salt? Yes. Talk um, to me about that.
2: Diamond crystal kosher salt is right. my go-to yes. for cooking. Yep. For finishing salt, I use Malden. Yeah, yeah.
1: And in a pinch, I'm assuming you can kind of break up your Malden and throw it in if you had to. Sure. Yeah. Sure, and vice versa. When you're developing, let's say for the book, are you trying to use like a table salt or a fine sea salt that's not no. co- you develop with kosher as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It just seems like that's what people have yes. at this
2: point. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Flour? You have a
1: brand that either you tested. King with, Arthur. Me too.
2: Me King too. King Arthur's my go-to. Flower. And did you test with it mm-hmm. for the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me as well. Tell me your go-to vanilla. I have been so fortunate in the last couple of years, friends and relatives are making vanilla oh, extract. Oh, my god! I haven't bought it in forever. That's amazing. But the brand that I would buy... Nielsen Massey? Nielsen yep. Massey. Yeah. Nielsen, yeah. If if I'm forced to purchase yep. my own vanilla... That's what you'll get. And my cousin's not making it for me, yeah. I'll get Nielsen and Massey And just quickly,
1: because I know it's not hard, how do people... How do you make a vanilla at home? Vanilla beans and and vodka. vodka. Yeah. And the caramel is kind of sugar, water, corn syrup, butter, heavy cream, and a little bit of creme fraiche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk Mm -hmm. to us about the addition of the creme fraiche in that caramel.
2: Just trying to take down the sweetness of it a little bit. Cream is very sweet. And obviously sugar is very sweet.
1: The chocolate ganache, as you said, 70 to 85 percent?
2: Ooh, 85 is high. Too high? 85 is high. 70 to 76.
1: 70 to 76. Okay, perfect. This is what I love. So there's a pinch of salt, but in the book, it's optional because it wasn't the way we think of salt now. It's just fascinating to me how different it it was. It's
2: very interesting. Yeah,
1: This is – I love this. There's your head note. You have to explain to people why you're doing it. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm just going to remind you, but there's a whole part where you say, look – have some guests over, have them take a little taste without the salt, then sprinkle a tiny bit on top of a bite and then see what they say. Mm-hmm. And it's just so wonderful. I'm like getting goosebumps because I'm like a freak <laughs> or a nerd. But a like, nerd. Let's, see. Uh, okay. Let's go with nerd. Okay, good. But I love this idea that this was just a different time in pastry and dessert and that people might have been like, Claudio, is that sugar on top? And you would have, no. That's salt on top. And you said you had to explain it's rounding out the buttery sweetness of caramel makes the chocolate flavor pop. Think chocolate-covered pretzel, which is so funny because now people are like, duh, of
0: course. Yeah.
1: I love that. Okay, the tools and assembly. So to make the crust, I know you call for a stand mixer with a paddle. Could you do
2: this in a food processor or you're – Sure. Either one. I did a lot of the doughs in a food processor. Yeah. Indelectable. The biggest difference between the last course and delectable is the last course was restaurant perspective and delectable was my kitchen yeah. perspective. Yep. So it would never in a million years occur to me to use a food processor for the last course because when you cook in volume, you can't use a food no. processor. You need to use a, yeah. a mixer. A Hobart. Yeah. yeah. A 40-cord yeah. Hobart. yeah 60-cord Hobart. Yeah. Those kinds of tools didn't of enter into how I developed things. Yep. But in the last course,
1: it's a stem mixer. You have your paddle attachment, creaming the butter and the sugar, yolk and vanilla, sifting in the flour and the cocoa powder, which I also noticed, and we'll talk about this when we get to the delectable, but you, you've changed that direction slightly. Beating on a low speed, scraping into a sheet of plastic. When you, you're chilling till firm, when you're rolling out, is there a favorite people love to hear about? what is Claudia's favorite tool? Like, do you have a favorite kind of rolling pin? Is there something you would suggest to the listeners? I like a French rolling pin. You do? You do?
2: Because I can really feel, you can just feel the dough a lot better. Can you describe, just in case people don't know which one the French one is? The French one is the, it's all wood. It doesn't have handles. And it tapers on the end. So you can really direct the dough and feel the thickness of it. It's much harder for me to feel the dough with, the handles. Okay, let's say you're me and you don't want
1: to pull out your rolling pin. Could you press the dough into the sure, pan? Sure. Sure. And would you chill it first or could you press it in out of the mixer, try and get it as even as possible, maybe dock it and then put it into the refrigerator to chill before baking off? What do you think?
2: I suppose you could. What gives it, you? It would be a little. Scoopy, maybe. Okay. Maybe a little too soft.
1: So you might chill the dough. Then you could, I don't know, maybe it's dory. You'd crumble the dough after it's been chilled into the pan. Oh, that's a good idea. And then press it in. What do you that's think about that? That's a good idea. I like yeah. that idea. Yeah. The only thing I know for myself, just because, well, making things even or not, it's, it can be hard. And the beauty of the rolling is you're going to have very even crust all the way
2: around. As it gets thinner, it gets softer and tends to stick to your rolling pin, and you don't want to continuously add flour so it doesn't right. stick. Right. So if you roll between parchment, you eliminate the necessity to continue to yep. add flour, Yep. and you can get it quite thin. But you can also, when you scrape it out of the bowl onto the plastic, spread it out quite thin. That's smart. So then you have less work. So then you have less work.
1: After you've rolled it out between the parchment, it's quite thin. Would you chill it briefly? Yes. B- before trying I, to get I, it into the, I would, yes. into the tart pan. Yeah.
2: Another g- great thing about using the parchment is anytime you feel like it's getting too soft, take it in there. Take it off the yeah. counter and put it in the. Yeah. Put it in the fridge. Yeah,
1: I love doing between two pieces of parchment yeah. too. It's yeah, so much and you, you
2: can never get it as thin. Or I can never get it as thin as I actually want it unless. I'm in between two pieces of parchment. Yeah, no, that's
1: I love that tip. When I think about the tart dough, can you over mix it? Do people need to be afraid? I know
2: it's got too much sugar in it. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty stable. Yeah, Yeah.
1: in the last course, the tarts are actually assembled in a mini muffin tin, which would have been tiny tarts. But at the restaurant, they would have been a little bigger than that,
2: two inch, four. What should I? What should we picture? It's funny because when the chocolate tarts started, they were probably in a a three-and-a-half, four-inch, and then they went into a a two-and-a-half, three-inch. And then at the North Fork table, I was making them in financier molds, which you know how shallow those are. yeah, And how thin, like, they're small. It was really like a candy bar, and I was like, this is it. Almost like a two-bite dessert. Three, I would say. And it only took me 20 years to get there. Yeah. So...
1: (laughs) For years I was always, when I was par baking, or I was always using parchment and pie weights. Back in the day, you were using aluminum foil, you knew.
2: It's just better. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, you can reuse it, first of all. Yes. I mean, you can reuse parchment, but then it starts to crumble. Yep. No, the foil is brilliant.
1: The caramel, so it's cooking the sugar, the water, the corn syrup. I love that there's no candy thermometer. You're just trusting that people can make caramel by color.
2: It is one of those things that you—the visual cues just are—they're are there essential. So yeah, I mean the, you, you have to. I mean by the time you put a thermometer in to register your temperature, you're gone you're, you're gone. It's, it's already.
1: So would you say definitely use a pot with a light, a light color? Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, that makes a big difference. Yeah,
1: your um, shiniest,
2: cleanest yes, pot. Yes, <laughs>
1: exactly. And then you're whisking and pouring the caramel into the tarts. Now for the ganache, chocolate in a bowl. When you make a ganache, how do you like the cream to look I before you pour it on? I a
2: scald right before
1: those bubbles start. And this is really finicky, but would you say that's tiny bubbles around yes, the edges? Yes, around the edges. And then you're good yeah. to go. And then if you, like, swirl the pot, you see, see the, the steam. steam. Yeah. yeah. You pour the cream over. You let it sit for two minutes. And you whisk until smooth. Pour the glaze. Let it rest. Sprinkle with a few granules. Ta-da! Ta-da! I also love this in the last course. The serving suggestions are caramel ice cream or chocolate malted ice cream. And can I just say malt powder for life? Oh, God. I love malt powder. I love malt powder. In the last course, you write these are small tarts. There's a variation for the larger one, like in a nine inch or 10 inch tart pan. But you say the caramel's gooey. So if you make it in the larger pan, it's going to be little a little messy. It's a little bit gooier. With Delectable, and I just love this addition, tell people what you're adding to this tart. Peanuts. Of course.
2: I mean. I know, right? And that's like almost Snickers-ish. That's really Snickers-ish. Yes. And I've seen so many variations with almonds, with walnuts, with pecans, with all different kinds of nuts. And I'm like, going down and dirty, going with the peanut, nothing like it. And I can't remember, is it salted roasted peanut? Yes. Yeah. So
1: it's still very much the chocolate tart from last course, but there are some changes that I noticed. It's like a teeny bit less flour, and now a little bit of salt in the dough, assembled in a stand mixer, but a little differently in the sense that you have the dry ingredients and you whisk them separately, as opposed to in the last course you use a sieve. And was that just It was just like,
2: is it really, do we really have to, It's. Just so restauranty, to right? Sift. To sift, yeah. Do we really, yep. I really? Yeah, do love that. that, love that. It's, um, I
1: highly recommend to anyone that has both of Claudia's books, or even you can find from the last course online. It's a, it's so interesting if you're into this kind of stuff to compare these two. I just love seeing. I'm so fascinated and honored that you
2: took the time to do oh, that. Of course.
1: Oh no, I love seeing what changed because, and I think as a reader and a consumer this is like a dream come true because you always want to ask the person, but why did you do it that way? And I get to. (laughs) And everybody listening gets to. So you have this brilliant tip in delectable when you're rolling out the dough and putting it into the tart. Tell us the great way to get that rolled out dough into the tart
2: pan. So with a removable bottom, you would slide that underneath your rolled out dough, fold the excess dough over and drop it in the tart ring and then lift and. I love that. I don't know why. I Instead know. of picking up the. Did
1: you invent it? I okay. didn't. I think I got yeah. it from Claire
2: Saffitz. Oh, frankly. you did? Oh, yeah. gosh. I know. Everything. She's a genius. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I can't take it. I can't take it. <laughs> I said to her, we uh, interviewed each other. And I'm like, does anybody really need another baking book after oh yours? Oh, I
1: know, but we need a delectable. I'm sorry. Okay. We really well, did. Well, thank you. That's we really, kind. really but... did. <laughs> Now, with the caramel filling, I was gonna ask, because in the headnote of last course, you had said if you make it big, it'll be a little oozy. Did you try to modify the caramel filling for the delectable version to make it a little less? Oo- Not really.
2: The okay. peanut, the peanuts take care of it. Ah, they weirdly hold it all because yes. the caramel yes, sticking. Yes, they, to they the hold peanuts. it
1: together. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Fascinating. Yeah. The caramel in this version has the a little bit of creme fraiche. Oh, but no heavy cream? No, you have heavy cream in it, too. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. You have to. The salt and the peanuts. And then you're cooking in the last course. I'm pretty sure the caramel is sort of you, you're you putting everything, you know, when you're boiling, all the ingredients are in there and you're bringing, you're bringing to, to the dark amber color. But here you're cooking the corn syrup and you're adding the sugar in stages. Tell us why. Because often you'll see a recipe that begins with everything kind of being cooked all together.
2: And that was... A method adopted from my pastry hero, Nancy Mm -hmm. Silverton.
1: Oh. And you even, I think you start with the corn syrup and then add the sugar. Add the sugar. Interesting. What what
2: is it? Why is that a good thing for us to do? Without any water, you reduce or actually almost eliminate the risk of crystallization. Ah, With the corn syrup. With the corn syrup. Yep. And doing it slowly or in stages also prevents pockets from burning and from mm-hmm. getting dry pockets. That also will promote crystallization. Mm-hmm. Works like a charm.
1: Making caramel can be like a, a little scary for people. Can you walk us through some of the signs that we're looking for when your caramel is almost ready? The color they're looking for or the smell of the caramel or isn't there sometimes like a wisp of steam that uh, comes off? Yeah, what smoke are the actually. Yeah, what yeah. are the signs that your caramel is ready? The caramel
2: is going to start very loose, big bubbles. And as the water starts to evaporate, the bubbles get smaller and slower. And then eventually, you start to see some tanning around the outside. And you want to swirl your pan a little bit just to, not aggressively, very gently, to distribute the coloring. And at that point, don't go anywhere. Okay. Because it's going to happen really fast. It's a very slow process until it starts taking on a little bit of color, but once it starts taking on a little bit of color, it's instant. Okay. I like my caramel very dark. I describe it as almost an Irish setter brown. It mm-hmm. gets this reddish color almost, and it's quite dark. You can also take it off when it's not quite to your liking because the carryover is so great. Mm-hmm. So you're probably more secure if you take it off when it's super light and let the color carry over. And if it's not the color you want it, put it back on.
1: Do you take it off and add the butter or the no, vanilla? No, 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 OK.
2: No. Take it Without, off. Take
1: it off. Take a breath.
2: Yep. OK. Let it get to a just a nice mahogany color. Yep. And um, then put
1: it back if you feel like you If you feel
2: li- like it's not dark enough put it back on.
1: Does the darkness of the caramel impact its texture in the sense of the longer you cook it, will it be a sturdier
2: caramel? No. No, no okay. not at all. It'll impact the taste. Right, of course. Yeah, it'll be more bitter. It actually almost gets looser when it goes past.
1: Ah, uh, interesting. It, yeah. Interesting. Just so people understand, if they take almost like the inside of a Rolo in terms of color, it's going to be really sweet. But yes. if you wait, it gets... That more of a
2: burnt... Yes, burnt more and burnt. kind of bitter.
1: I usually do it in a very small Le Creuset pan. Do you have a like a favorite
2: pan for making caramel? The of? Le Creuset is genius because it's white. And so you're not being deceived by the color. And darker pans tend to promote faster cooking. Yep. A light bottom pan is, is, probably, ideal. is ideal.
1: The ganache, in delectable, a little more chocolate, which may be because it's one big one big tart. I love this tip. The chocolate's in your bowl. You're putting your warm, heavy cream on top. You're letting it sit. And you say, do not use a whisk to mix it together. Use a rubber spatula. Can you tell us why we should be doing that? Is that with all ganache? I'm, yeah. yeah.
2: Tell us, tell us. It introduces bubbles. Okay. And you want that glass, right? That like ice skating rink shine on top ah. and so bubbles just ruin the mirror like finish
1: Resh. so it's not a flavor or texture thing no, it's not purely all. it's visual uh, i love yeah. that in terms of the ganache i know we said a few bubbles maybe a waft of steam what is the issue why can't you boil your cream and then pour it over your
2: it breaks uh, it'll break the chocolate is very sensitive sensitive yeah And it just doesn't emulsify in the same way Uh, if it's too hot. uh,
1: I noticed one thing. Often a ganache recipe will say, wait one minute. But I noticed you have you wait two minutes. Do you think like the longer you're giving it to melt on its own? Yeah, the
2: less work you have to do and the less agitating you have to do.
1: Okay, silly question. But just thinking about myself at home, I have my chocolate in a bowl. I'm pouring over my cream. Are you kind of trying to pour so you're getting it over all of that chocolate? Do you know what I mean? I guess it depends on the size of the bowl. But are Mm. you just kind of pouring it in or are you making sure that every little piece of chocolate is covered in the cream?
2: It seems to me that because of the ratio of ganache, once you pour in all your cream, it's it's almost just covered, right?
1: Just completely covered. With ganache or any chocolate. Would you use guitar
2: chocolate chips to make your ganache or would you want it to be bar chocolate? Whenever you can get chips, get chips. They make couverture in chocolate chips. We're not talking about Nestle. Nestle's chocolate yep. chips. I get it. I think most high-end chocolate companies these days You're make... Right. them. Make, You're right. They call them pa- Palais or Feve or yep. They call them all kinds of different yes. fancy... But you can use words. those for
1: your ganache. It does not have to be a bar of the chocolate. It
2: does not okay. have to be a bar. Good to no, know. No, absolutely not. Good to know.
1: I love this and I'm curious about it. All of the cooling of this tart is done at room temperature as opposed... To, could, I, could I speed it up and put it in the fridge or do you not like what happens when you stick the finished tart into the refrigerator? It's going to take the shine off ah. the ganache. So keep it on the counter if you want the shine. After it's come completely to room temp, let's say you're not serving it, then can you... Or whenever you stick it in that fridge, you're losing shine. Yeah, Ah. whenever. The thing about the tart that's interesting is that there are three components but making each one is easy it's just that you then have to put all three together
2: yeah, yeah. they're all three elements the most basic elements of pastry so you put them together all together so it's potentially time-consuming. And again, there are several steps and not one bowl. And, yep. you know, yep. you'll use some, some utensils and, yep. and bowls and such. But each element in and of itself is very basic.
1: I hope the listeners are appreciating all of the science that's being dropped by the genius that is Claudia. Those are my questions about the recipes, but I did have a a question that at least is super interesting to me as a cookbook writer, et cetera. Could you talk about what it was like working with Melissa on the first book and Catherine on the second book? Just what does that feel like? What roles do they play? What do you play? Their names are on the covers, which is something. I mean, they're my co-writers. Yeah. That's how you think of them.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And collaborators, really. Yeah. I mean, they sometimes the seeding of an idea... In retrospect, like, you don't even remember whose idea it was. And I can say almost with certainty that the best ideas are not mine. (laughs) They come from other people all the time. But the biggest difference, I would have to say, is that I worked in person with Melissa. Ah. And because it was the pandemic, Kathy and I were on the phone. What do you call it when you're Zoom or not Zoom. Oh, FaceTime. Face timing. Yeah. I had my phone in the kitchen cabinet, yeah. Propped up against the dishes and I was cooking and she was asking questions and it was pretty wow. crazy. Wow! Like did for you about to, like, four hours a day. Wow! Yeah. And did she like want you to move the phone? Absolutely.
1: Oh my gosh, Claudia! And like, show you what it, like, this yeah. is—the bubbles I'm talking. And wait,
2: what did you just do? I missed Rhett. that. Wait, do that again. I'm like, well, I don't want yeah. to do it. Yet. Yeah. We got to take a break. Yeah. I have to wash some dishes. Otherwise, there's no more room anywhere. Yeah. So, would you draft
1: a recipe and send it to her, or it would be more like she would watch you do things and say how and much? And record. Did, yeah. yep. Amazing! Yeah. Wow. And then also help with the head notes. Oh,
2: absolutely yeah. helped with the head notes. Yeah, yeah. I would dictate mostly, yeah. and she would make me sound incredible. Intelligible. Yeah. which you do. Thank so it you. worked. Good. <laughs>
1: Good job. And then Thank um, you. this is a silly question, but I know people will. I'm interested, even though I know it's a silly one. Anything indelectable that you think could have that? Psh- that the chocolate caramel tart had? Like any recipes that people seem to be making from it or... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, or anything that you're very attached to that you hope people get on board with? I'm very attached to the Gruyere and onion biscuits. Yeah. Tell people about the sweet potato ones with the chocolate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's almost, I guess, a pumpkin pie with like yeah, a chocolate vibe. Chocolate. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think I was thinking sweet potato pie, actually. But you're right. Yeah, those were delicious, too. Also, the shiitake mushroom buns. I'm definitely exploring my savory side more in Delectable, which feels really good. There's lots of good stuff. There are cakes in there, which is something that I never, ever did. Was that hard for you to develop? It was kind of hard, but I got really into it.
1: Oh, I know. Tell people about the ginger the one that's based on your... Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay, so the gingerbread, you know, that was everyone's go-to in the last course because it was the simplest recipe and it was delicious. Just a slice of gingerbread cake with some creme fraiche and some candied Yeah. Oh, I had a friend who was Irish who was born on St. Patrick's Day who wanted a birthday cake. I thought, what better than the Guinness Stout gingerbread cake for her birthday? And I'll just make a layer cake out of it. And that's how that was born. Yeah. And it's delicious. What's the frosting or what? The frosting is the ermine frosting. Oh, I love ermine so much. It's a roux, which is flour and milk, and you make a paste. And then you add milk to it, and you get this paste, and you put it on your mixer, and you cool it down, and then you add bits of butter. It's not the precursor to buttercream. It came after buttercream, yeah. I'm sure. but. It's, the method is more like buttercream, but it actually is the precursor to cream cheese, which was apparently very hard to come by. Ah. And ermine frosting or cream cheese frosting, ermine is its predecessor. Ah. But if you couldn't get cream cheese, it's almost like with that roux you were making some kind of pa-
1: solid. Thick. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, for those that have never had it, it does take a teeny bit more. I mean, yeah. it's not an American yeah. buttercream. No, it's a little more complicated than that. But the
2: taste and is the just, texture is so is beautiful,
1: incredible,
2: and not sweet. No, I find cream cheese frosting very sweet. Yeah, yeah, probably because it has so much sugar in it. Yeah, this
1: does not. Yeah, Ermine is so good. Yum. Yeah, and it's is it so flavored? Bland. I can't remember. On the, no, it's no just, vanilla. Yeah, it's just vanilla. love that. Yeah, love that. I know you've had two positions now with Danny since you started working for Union Square Hospitality Group. But can you tell us a little bit about the newest position? Sure.
2: I am the Executive Culinary Director, which sounds so fancy, So doesn't fancy. It? Yes. So fancy. So I I'm love it. So impressed. For Daily Provisions, which is a all-day cafe, your neighborhood cafe. We like to say that we make things that you know better than you thought they could be. Love. um simple egg sandwich, right? Tuna fish sandwich, egg salad sandwich, the basic stuff but delicious. And my job is to R&D menu items that may or may not make it onto the menu and to train and work with staff, the teams in the restaurants. And it's a very busy day. It's great. Incredible.
1: And you strike me as someone who always like some of us, like I write cookbooks, develop recipes, but I like doing it in the, I'm a, like, I guess I'm homebody ish. I like to be home. But you strike me as someone who is, enjoys that, like being able to go and be uh, at I what, do. Yeah.
2: The pace of a restaurant yeah. is really something that, yeah, that feeds Is you. my jam. And you
1: get that even if it's in the kitchen of the daily provision. Absolutely. Those places rock. Oh, that's I so I mean, awesome. they are so busy.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But with the hours that don't require you to, to be a pastry chef at a – yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. Nice. it's really nice. It's a, it's a Monday through Friday. Yeah. For
1: those beginning. that have never been to a Daily Provisions, either because you don't live in New York City or if you're coming to New York or you've never – they, I just adore the – can you tell us
2: about the cruller? Yeah. It's a little bit famous. It's a lot famous <laughs> well before my my time. But it's, I guess, what you call a French donut. It's a dough yeah. that's piped. And I can't say anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and then cooked. <laughs> and glazed. One is the cinnamon glaze, one is a maple sugar glaze, and then there's the rotating flavor. Yeah. And this month's just happens to be Meyer Lemon Poppy Seed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I love the citrus with the crispy cruller dough.
1: Also yeah, the cruller dough has this beautiful crispiness. C- yeah. Almost custardy but Cust-
2: exactly. So custardy delicious. inside. Yeah, yeah. They're wonderful. So good.
1: Thank you so much for chatting with me, Claudia, and I just wanted to tell you that you are my cherry pie.
2: Oh, thank you. You are mine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's it for today's show. Thank you to Claudia Fleming. You can find the recipe for Claudia's chocolate caramel tart on cherrybomb.com, and the link is in our show notes. Thank you to Le Cruset and California Prunes for supporting our show. She's My Cherry Pie is a production of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Our show is recorded at CityVox Studios in Manhattan. Our executive producers are Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker, and our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. Thank you for listening to She's My Cherry Pie, and happy baking.